Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Calling all members of the Bayhive, gather around and rejoice because today we are going to be talking about Beyonce. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, because really it could be, and maybe it already is the subject for an entire podcast series in itself. So today we're only going to be discussing just one of her most recent visual works, Black as King. And we will certainly get into explaining Black as King with today's guests. But before we do, if you had to pick three words, Cass, to describe how you felt the first time you saw it, what would they be? Oh, man. I mean, regal, uh, majestic, mesmerizing, magical. The list goes on and on and on. So for any of our listeners out there who have not already seen Black is King, might we suggest you do so either before or immediately after listening to this episode, because we will be covering specific scenes and references that words simply cannot do justice. You know, the old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, in this case, it's more like a picture is worth a million words. <laughs> yes millions probably. And just a heads up, I think that at the moment you can only stream Black is King in its entirety if you subscribe to Disney Plus, but there are little snippets of it here and there on YouTube if you do a little bit of searching. And uh, seek further we shall into this incredible visual album, which is many things, but at its core, it's it's a complete reimagination of the narrative arc of the story of the Lion King, and it combines both original music and visuals. Yes, and in this endeavor to unpack the multitude of meanings and references in Black is King, we are joined today by curator and fashion historian Darnell Jamal Lisby, who has written extensively on Beyonce's wardrobe and costuming as a storytelling device. Darnell, welcome to Dressed. Darnell, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us on Dressed. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. You know, I always looked up to you guys. You you all do it. You all are paving that, trailblazing that path. So I appreciate it. Well, you you are a fellow podcaster also. And I think we'll kind of maybe talk about that at the end of the show. But um, of course, you and I have known each other for many years now. Yeah. And I was so delighted to discover online recently that you've been writing for Teen Vogue. I did not know this. <laughs> Apparently, I'm a little <laughs> bit behind on my online reading during COVID. But I got super excited, especially when I read your article on Beyonce's visual album, Black is King, that you wrote a few months ago. And, you know, Cassidy and I have actually wanted to do something about it uh, since it came out this summer. But I, for one, didn't feel knowledgeable enough about African dress and fashion to be able to kind of make those really, really specific connections in order to analyze it in the way that it really deserves. So, you did such a really lovely job of breaking down certain ensembles in the article. And I was like, ah, maybe finally we can do something on this. And I texted you and I was like, please come on dress. And you said, yes. So here we are today. But for any of our listeners who might not necessarily be familiar with Black is King, can you tell us a little bit about the premise and how it came into being? Sure. So Black is King is, well, it's obviously Disney's baby, but like the whole idea with Black is King stemmed from the Lion King uh, remake that Disney was executing it, the live action version. And Beyonce was playing Nala in the film, uh, well, the adult Nala in the film. Therefore, you know, she, I'm assuming had some deal with Disney to do an album. So she did the Blackest King album that came out in 2019. And so in the the album, she decided to, instead of doing every song herself, she decided to bring on board different mainstream African artists and to collaborate with them to really kind of produce and uh, and be a part of every single song 
or most of the songs. I know some of the songs are exclusively her, but uh, I'll say probably like 70% of the album is either like completely an African artist or her with an African artist. Um, so that, that album, like I said, came out in 2019. And based on the, I guess, timeline from different interviews that I know her stylist, Zarina Akers, who was like the creative director for the project, uh, executed, you know, post-Black is King, I will say probably around December-ish, November-ish 2019 is when they actually started taping the visual film for Black is King, which came out obviously in July 2020. And so they wanted to essentially bring Lion King into human form. Because I think this is always like the irony about Lion King. I think everybody loves the story, but we also have to kind of look at the subtleties here of like, They're using like South African names and aspect, like different cultural points and putting them on like animal cartoons. Mm -hmm. And that's really kind of problematic (laughs) within itself. So what Beyonce did was bring it to human form uh, in a more abstract way into the film. So she plays herself as like a narrator throughout the film and following, you know, Simba into, you know, manhood and using all of the different songs in each kind of video, mini video within the film Mm -hmm. as uh, transitions uh, for the story. So that's the Blackest King film in a nutshell. Yeah, so it's essentially a, a, a video album component to the music album. Exactly. It's what she's traditionally done for years, people think that Lemonade was the first time she's done that, but she did that actually with the second album, the B Day album. She did something similar, kind of like a precursor to like that visual album that she had like done like a film package uh, for all of the songs on that album. So um, she's really traditionally done this throughout her career and perfected it with the self-titled album, and then the Lemonade album, and uh, here we are with Black is King. Yeah. Well, I have now seen it three times. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have to admit, the first time I didn't I didn't pick up immediately on the Lion King connection. And then I was about a third of the way through, and I looked at my boyfriend. We were sitting on the couch, and I said, is this the Lion King? And he was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we had, we had a good laugh about it. But one of the very, very first scenes where there's a man and a woman standing kind of high up on this rock and, sh- and she's in a red dress and he's in a red suit and he has on this incredible blinged out halo headpiece. You know, when I saw that, I'm like, oh, I see what's happening. We're getting ready to go on a fashion journey. And 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 mm-hmm. we did. <laughs> so for the, for the next 80 minutes or so, I just kind of sat there completely transfixed as to what I was seeing in terms of the costumes and the styling. Can you tell us a little bit about, you've already um, mentioned Acres, but would you tell us a little bit about the creatives that created the looks behind the film? Sure. So Zarina was really kind of the the ringmaster for this entire, for all the imagery for Black is King. But she was, a lot of these people that participated in creating the costumes, it's hard to say because it's people know in the field, my thesis paper was Dressing Queen B, Beyonce's on stage costumes and fashions which you can find on ProQuest. But it's hard to call them costumes because a lot of it is fashion. (laughs) It's like things that you would actually wear um, out on the street. But with that said, Serena was friends with a lot of these people, you know, or knew these people or worked with them at some point in time and uh, had them, you know, of course, when you say Beyonce's name, you can't really say no. So a lot of these people (laughs) immediately jumped on the opportunity. Um, I know one of like the big like staple pieces was, for instance, a Loza Moembo zebra geometric type uh, bodysuit, uh, which was uh, supposed to be inspired by wax print. This idea of the, these eccentric type of prints that are on the stiff cotton and, and really kind of exuding that element of West Africa, where a lot of the film was actually produced and, and, and directed. That was probably one of the big staples. Uh, you have Tongaro Studios, which did 
a lot of like the houndstooth and the bogalone femi like looking uh, uh, gowns and, and things that she wore later on in the film. Uh, she had her own costume designer that has been working with her for some years, Timothy White do a lot of the the elements, different different kind of more eccentric pieces that really a designer, because as you know, there's a, there's a line between like a costume designer and a fashion designer. So he really kind of took it to that place with some of the, the pieces. I'm trying to think, of course, the traditional houses uh, that, that participated like Balmain, of course, and Valentino and Burberry with Ricardo Tisci. He did the, the cowhide moment uh, that was in the already video. He also reached out to Jerome Lamar, who's a native here in New York in the Bronx, uh, to do the Nigerian lace ensemble and also an already with the big gele that she wore. Another one, Molly Goddard, uh, the big pink uh, frilly dress with the, with the gele as well. There's so many. It's like coming all back, like rushing to my head at the same time. So I do apologize if I'm like rattling. (laughs) Like people, um, Melissa Simone Hartman is another one who did like the chess piece ensembles. Mm -hmm. Uh, She she was lead on that. So all of these different elements came together in a very seamless way and really kind of spoke to the imagination in her head. And I think that this also needs to be clear because I did a program with the Southern Institute of Africans in Diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a program with them uh, months ago. And, you know, I want to stress it like it's just there that she is not like professor of the world. Like she's not here to like give you facts on all things, you know, African diaspora. Like right. that's not Beyonce's job. What she's doing is reimagining this convergence of all these different cultures coming together in this alternate dimension, really kind of in the vein of Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. So I think that we we have to put that in perspective. But through these designers and bringing them from all over, you know, the world, obviously everyone has roots to Africa, but they're based, some are based in Paris, some are based here in the United States, some are based in South America, and then of course based on the continent and really kind of coming together in this very, very, again, seamless way. Yeah. You know, so so obviously she, that Zarina Akers, who was, as you said, the ringmaster uh, in terms of all the looks um, in the film, you mentioned she was working with luxury brands and she was also working with African designers as well. And this may be a bit of an obvious question, but why was it important to work with both luxury brands as well as African designers? It's really, I think that, I don't think that that's necessarily low-hanging fruit because the, the reality is if you look at like Beyonce's career as a whole, you know, not as like a piece, because it's funny when you talk to people, you know, re, I call them recent Beyonce fans, you know, the ones that came around, you know, circa self-titled uh, album, you know, mm-hmm. 2013, they just got on the bandwagon when people <laughs> like myself have been around since, you know, Destiny's Child days. You know, it's it's a, it's, they see, you know, Beyonce in a very particular way because of the different touch points in her artistry and her costumes and, you know, reaching into the Black community and reaching into the African community and incorporating them. So when you see it in her entire career, she actually, this is very recent for her, you know, in terms of the outside of her own mom, creating a lot of the costumes in the beginning of her career, you know, for the most part, she's worn a lot of European designers. You know, that's just the name of the game when you're trying to become an international superstar. It is what it is. But in recent years where she's had the power and control to really kind of take her artistry into the place that she wants to, well, she's really bent on making sure that Blackness and her community and on a very broad basis, is shown through her artistry and given that platform. So, you know, that was that's also within Zarina's mission as a, as a stylist, as a creative director, as a costume designer. You know, that's within her repertoire. She really, and hence why she has the new uh, initiative, her new business, Black-owned everything. I think that's what it's called. It's a website where it's like almost like a repository of all things black owned in the fashion industry. You could submit your business to be posted there and 
et cetera, et cetera. So, and so Beyonce also has the same thing on her website. So, you know, they're really in this mode where they have complete control over what to put out and how to connect audiences with the ingenuity across the African diaspora. So that's why it was really kind of integral to the Blackest King film. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about um, some of the, like, very specific looks. But before we kind of delve into some of the clothing, you note in your article that you wrote for Teen Vogue that that one of the common threads that runs all throughout Black is King is Beyonce's representation or allusion to the goddess Ocean. So would you tell us a little bit about the significance of Ocean and some of the moments in the film where we see Ocean referenced? Because a lot of times this is being done by way of clothing. Well. I'll preface by saying, you know, this idea of Ocean really kind of came into Beyonce's lexicon circa Lemonade. You know, we saw, you know, the yellow representation, obviously, in uh, Hold Up, where she's walking down the street with the Cavalli dress and jacking up all these cars with her bat. It was a whole moment. And then we see it again. Uh, in her her Grammy's performance, uh, where she was uh, pregnant at the time, and again it was Peter Dundas who left Cavalli and then started his own line and worked with Beyonce to create that uh, masterpiece of a of a gown. And so, you know, we Beyonce using Ocean is really a symbol of her exploration of blackness. And creatives and artists and uh, designers have done have have kind of explored their blackness in various ways, subtly or inadvertently. And this is just one of those ways that she's done it and connected to it. And in the Blackest King film, you know, the even the the first moment. You know, we we see her in the Wendy Nicole, you know, gown. It's uh, almost reminds me, actually, when I saw it, it actually reminded me of the McQueen collections. It'll come back to me. But it's it's the way her in that position of, of by the sea in that moment and really kind of understanding the context of that she is really kind of taking you on this journey of this African journey, really, you know, you begin to kind of connect those pieces and you see the child there and you really see all the components of the idea of who Oshan is. So Oshan is a Orisha, which is a spirit or God uh, in the Yoruba culture. Uh, in Yoruba are native to Nigeria. They don't really practice it these days. A lot of them are mostly Christian, but uh, in their ancient culture, uh, they would practice and, and there's many different Orishas. There's not just Oshun. There's like a whole like pantheon of Orishas. And I think we that should be clarified as well. But Oshun is the goddess of rivers, rebirth, fertility, and love and money. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> you know, rightfully so. You she's know, a badass, you know, basically. She is. She is. She's a, she's a whole queen. So that's why Beyonce embraces her, because it represents something that she's carrying in terms of her messages. You know, this idea of love, this idea of fertility and rebirth. I mean, she. I feel like she's been pregnant every other year since, you know... <laughs> Like since 2016. So with that said, you know, she's representing a lot of the the ideas of the goddess, you know, in her own way. And so for her to connect that in Black is King is is very, it's not a a disjointed connection. So we see in the Winnie Nicole uh, dress in the opening scene. Uh, we see it at the end with the bomba, like the pleated gown that she wore when she was seeing Spirit Acapella. You know, that that's certainly a very direct reference. We see it in the Adama Paris gown when it was slightly in the middle, I want to say, in the film where she was laying down and she was wearing a, a gale, yellow gale mm-hmm. as well. So we see it integrated throughout these moments, these more spiritual moments in the film, really the ones that speak to the spiritual, not the ones that speak to the more, you know, jazzy production and, you know, really kind of getting into the groove and the rhythm, really the moments that are speaking to spirituality and speaking to that inner self um, is really when we see the moments of Auchan. And I think that that's something that she's done quite well. And I, I don't foresee a slowing down in her future projects either. So...
mentioned yellow a couple times. Why is it that yellow is so closely connected with Oshun? Again, she represents, you know, she's the goddess of money. So it's it's this idea of gold and the sun and really kind of the imagery that has been projected from Oshun is gold and yellow and the sun. And also, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and I might have to be fact-checked on this, but I don't know if her consort was like the, was the, the Orisha of, of, of like the sky and the sun and whatnot. I think he, she, he was, but I, might, I do have to be fact-checked on that. But it, it's all in connection with one another. But with her representing rebirth, you know, this idea of, you know, starting a new day, obviously with the sun, it's it's all in connection with that. So gold and yellows and that that kind of canary yellow just represents newness and freshness. And so it's within the idea of presenting Oshan traditionally that she's really kind of subverting and reinterpreting. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited we get to talk about textiles because textiles, textiles, textiles are all over. Black is king. Um, And you have already mentioned wax print. And our regular listeners will know that I keep saying for three years that I want to do an episode on wax print. And I can promise you, I finally figured this out and it will be coming later this season. But um, so we're going to do a whole in-depth episode on that. But but, um, just as a summary, would you tell us a little bit about the fascinating history of wax print textiles in Africa? Because really, if a textile can hold a history, wax print is certainly like a really good example of this. Absolutely. I love it. So I, I was always fascinated by wax print. And back in, as you know, back in 2018, I had the opportunity, I won the George C. Dorsch Award, and I traveled and everything. And I went to actually, there was a few exhibitions at the time that were about wax print, including there was one here in uh, the U.S. in uh, Memphis uh, at the Brooks Museum of Art that was about wax print, Africa print fashion now. But uh, it was a whole move. But wax print, when it comes to the history of wax print, the Dutch, they were colonizing Indonesia and Southeast Asia. And they were trying to find, obviously, like a viable product in order to sell and, and, and profit from. And they were attempting at the time, this was probably roughly like the, the 17th century, into the 16th into the 17th century. They were trying to sell it to the Indonesians, the Southeast Asians. And the, they weren't having it. They were like, we don't like this. We don't like the colors. It's hot. We don't want it. And the Dutch were like, we have to find a new market for it. And so they were doing a lot of trade, obviously, and their obviously biggest export were human beings. Uh, They were doing a lot of trade in slave trade specifically in West Africa. And through that, they, they realized that this could be a new market for them of selling wax print. And so once they started to kind of redirect their trading uh, and their really manufacturing in West Africa, the populations really took to it. They began to really consume wax print because of the colors. And obviously, traditionally in those places and all over the African continent, various ethnic cultures, they really loved a variety of colors for different reasons, whether it's cultural, whether it's leisure. They love kind of uh, uh, using that as an extension of themselves. And so it was very much no different than the cultures in West Africa. And so they very much, the Dutch sold and produced a lot. They obviously took a lot of the cotton that was there, manufactured it, and then sent it back with, you know, all the prints. And then eventually you established a lot of manufacturing and factories in the area so that the production could stay in-house and it's cheaper that way. Um, and it was sold in the common marketplace for several hundred years now. So, well, no, no, several hundred, but a hundred and some odd years. You have the evolution of wax print being a staple in that area. And really of recent years, contemporary African designers are figuring out ways to kind of subvert that to reclaim their power. Mm-hmm. Because wax print does have a strong colonial history it represents this economy that was created out of controlling the local people and, and really kind of disrupting 
their lives in, 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 in very negative ways. So contemporary fashion designers are figuring out ways to incorporate it and really kind of rewrite that narrative a little bit. And so I think that's what's very unique about Black is King because you definitely see that. Yeah. And a- another textile that we see referenced throughout the film is Bogolanfini, which at first I was like, wait, I, do I know what that is? Uh, some of you might know it better by the term mud cloth. Would you tell us a little bit about that as well? Of course. Like I call it mud cloth, like in my day-to-day life. <laughs> and then I had to do it because Willie Smith also used Bogolanfini as a, as the inspiration uh, for his nineteen eight spring nineteen eighty six collection, so I, I've been like saying that word a lot. But typically, even before then, I will always say mudcloth. So I get where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but bogolom is a, a textile practice uh, native to what is the modern day Mali, but really the Dogo people and the Bamana people who are native in that that part of the world and actually a very large creative reference in Black is King. You know, the long linear masks that you might see, that's actually from the the Dogon people. Uh, So it's very much, you see those like direct references from the the peoples of Mali or contemporary Mali uh, in West Africa. But the Bogolon Fini is that that is is that mud cloth practice where you have the textile strip woven, typically by men. Men usually do this practice, and uh, after strip woven, it's it's put in like this kind of mud yellow dye, which acts as almost like a mordant, and then the outline is is really drawn, and then that negative space is filled with either it's painted or it's left, you know, untouched. And then it goes through several different divats over, I'll say weeks. It takes a long time for this to happen. It's not like it happens in like a day or two. It, it takes weeks because you have to let the mud dry. And then after you take, after you're towards the end of the process, um, you take the mud off and it really, it leaves that white, uh, like the white print that, that we all get to see and love from the Bogolonfini. So that's that's the basis. That's like the rough and dirty of how that textile is produced. It's a resist technique, essentially. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And how do we see Bogolonfini or mud cloth referenced in the film? Because I didn't pick up on that right away. It was your article. And then I was like, oh, I see it now. Yeah. Tongoro Studios really kind of exuded that Bogolonfini style that I, the moment I saw it was actually because she she uh, released the spirit music video long before she released Black is King. And so when I saw the spirit videos, they had Tongaro Studios do like an ensemble for her. Like I think it was like a bodice pant and maybe like a little jacket uh, with like a, a headscarf. And I was like, oh, that looks like Bungalow Fini. And then I had to go online and Tongaro Studios, they're based in Mali. And I was like, Oh, this is all making sense. I'm not crazy to think that they're that this is like the basis of the inspiration. In the visual album, you know, they were asked again to 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 produce more of the uh, costumes, and and you see it again specifically, and also the hairstyle that she has in one of the gowns, the Tongaro Studio gowns, is also very reminiscent of like Molly's sculpture. It was sculpture native to like the specific the Bamana people in that part of the world. So it's it's the the visual connections are so close that you it's 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 hard. It was hard to miss for me. I was like, oh, there it is again. And so um, that was really kind of like the biggest splash of of, of Bogolonfini throughout the film. I mean, I don't know how I'm gonna pick, but if I had to pick, I think <laughs> I think my favorite song and like number in the film would be Find Your Way Back. It has this kind of overarching celestial theme and it has all these references to the heavens and stars. And and because of that, it's very sparkly. (laughs) Let's just say it's very sparkly. So there are so many crystals and so much bling and so much fringe. And I want to ask you about this because we see a lot of fringe all throughout Black is king. So why is the use of fringe significant? The moment, because I understood that this was supposed to use a lot of odes to the African continent on a very, you know, broad basis, immediately my mind was thinking about those different aspects, you know, like 
typically that's how I approach my work. If this is like a directive of an artist, my mind is going to go to that culture. I'm not really going to think about the space that I currently live in. And so for me, I was like, okay, because even some of the scenes was like, okay, she's taping in Ghana or she's taping here or she's clearly this is supposed to be this other dimension of what, you know, this very Black Panther looking like dimension that she's taking us in. So my mind thought about the people of Burkina Faso. You know, like that was one of my biggest uh, research points when back in 2018 when I was doing the Dorsal Ward Grant. And the, they, they have a lot of fringe costume, particularly made of raffia. And different meanings, obviously. Some of them are, and then also to add, the costumes are made of raffia, but the, the face masks are made of wood or, you know, typically made of wood, but there are representations of animals. So it's very much, if you're putting on that costume, you're um, invoking like a spirit or, you know, it's very, it's, it's, it's very, um, well, sometimes it's leisurely like a fun, festive situation, but a lot of times it is uh, for spiritual references or telling a story. Mm -hmm. So with, through that and understanding that lens, I was like, well, I feel like that's a lot of what's going on here with a lot of the fringe moments you're taking directly from uh, that culture and really kind of hyper-stylizing it for this celestial moment. Again, telling another story, uh, particularly one of the Lion King. Uh, and in this moment, you know, she's telling that that point in the in the film, she's saying, you know, find your way back, really kind of foreshadowing this idea that Simba is going to be taken off his path and he's going to try to have to find his way back, you know, back to his rightful place as king. So really it's it's that that song is like a foreshadow. It's it's a moment uh before the actual story begins. So Within that, it's it's also, it's funny because, you know, back to the earlier point where Black is King is bringing to life a story about animals in the Burkina Faso, you know, the cultures of Burkina Faso, the Bois people specifically, like they have the animal, you know, representation and they're becoming like, not animals, but they're representing animals in the stories, but like Beyonce subverting that back to human form. So it's really this, fun conversation that's going on between, you know, the traditions of these people and what Beyonce wanted to do in the film and what Sabrina obviously uh, was able to connect. And of course, just on a very just uh, aesthetic level, it's very beautiful. Like it's very gorgeous to see Beyonce in that, again, like you said, celestial role, you know, I really, it was just visually beautiful. So I can understand why it was chosen. I think it was Lace by Tanea was the designer for that. If your listeners haven't seen it, you will know the number as as, yeah. <laughs> as soon as it comes on. <laughs> yeah, Aria, I think, did some things for it. Did like, Aria did like the cape, like the poncho and Lace by Tanea did another fringe moment in that scene. It was a whole mood. So I loved it. <laughs> Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. So we can't really go any further without talking about some of the hairstyles and the wigs that were featured. They're amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And Neil Farina and his team have given actually a few different interviews about the process of this creation. 
And there was a lot of careful research in there, references to specific styles worn by specific African peoples. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. So they were doing a lot of research to bring together, again, all of these disparate cultures. We also have to put out there, their intention was not to disrespect any of the cultures. It was to kind of bring us into this, really, this Afrofuturist reality that had been cool to see what life would have been if Black Panther were real. You know, like, it's really in the same vein. It's not to, to make any light of the fact that these hairstyles have very strong cultural significance to each community uh, that they hail from. And so, you know, on just like a very superficial basis, like cornrows, like cornrows, you see a lot of that throughout the entire film. That's, that's not necessarily particular to one, one culture in the African continent or across the Afro diaspora. Like it's very much embedded within many of them, most of them. Um, it's it, for thousands of years. It's not like, a, you know, some new phenomenon. It really is a, a reference to the way Black people's hair grows and how it's maintained. And so in different cultures now, there are more nuances to that, you know, based off of how hair braiding patterns also represent a hierarchical system. Or, you know, how certain braiding patterns represent, it could represent, you know, where you live, you know, like this may be a specific one to this community and this may be specific to another community. So those nuances are there. But I'll point out to like, for instance, the Bantu knots. It's my favorite. It was my favorite look. (laughs) That's like a very South African towards like the, like the Bantu people and Zulu people that are native to the South African region that's embedded within their culture for thousands of years at this point in time. And so the Bantu knots, if you don't know, they're they're the little uh, braids that are kind of put into little individual knots all over your head. And so it's it's very much a symbol of beauty uh, for those people. So it's not necessarily like, you know, some strong, like religious uh, notion. I think that we have to also be uh, very clear about how different African cultures develop their styles over time. Just like any other culture, Eurocentric culture here in America, in Latin America, some styles are just made just because they're great to maintain and they're pretty. You know, it's not necessarily like so, like, because I think that there's a notion that when we start talking about various African cultures, it's always like some spiritual or religious aspect to it. Sometimes it's just because it's pretty, you know, it, it just works and it's, it's embedded in the culture. And Bantu knots is, another, is one of those. We also see, I'm trying to think, we see a lot of cornrows. We see a lot of, I mean, even, even so, like she straightens her hair quite a bit too, right? Like she, she, she does different styles where she straightens it or she curls it. And in some cases, I think that has to be noted as well, that I think this idea of wigs, you know, that is very predominant in, in African culture, dating back, obviously, we look at ancient Egyptians, they wore wigs, you know, they, they, that was a part of the lifestyle. You shaved off your head because it was hot. Yeah. You wore wigs. And so, <laughs> like, that happens. And Beyonce, obviously, looking into her history, you know, she at one point in time was having, used her natural hair a lot but it damaged her hair. So she had to begin using wigs in her artistry a lot more than she thought she would. And so pretty much a lot of what she's worn since like 2006, seven have all been wigs. And so we see that has not changed in this, in this context. So it's very much embedded into the African diaspora lexicon, but uh, to say the least, it's, it's, it's all a convergence, you know, to show this new dimension. And, you know, another thing, um, we see incredible headpieces as well. Do you have any thoughts on those or do you have any favorites, perhaps? Oh, my God. I mean, the galleys were like super like in your face all throughout the entire film. I think those are probably like my set of favorites, the different galleys from the ones that the, the matching one that Jerome Lamar had, the Molly Godard one, the Madame Adama Paris galley. 
you know, all of them were just so much fun to watch. And I will say, I believe they're called different names in different parts of the continent based off the culture. Gele is the more West African identifier of that headdress, but they're called different things. Uh, well, they're, they're named different things and depending on what community you go to. But I grew up in, for those who know, I was born in Atlanta, I grew up there, and then I also grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland, uh, which has a large West African population. So I'm used to seeing the Gale, you know, <laughs> like going to school. <laughs> for any of our listeners who, who aren't familiar, just think those amazing, gorgeous, elaborate, kind of like wrap, almost like turban, just beautiful, beautiful. They're beautiful. like crowns. Yeah. They're really like crowns. That's really the point. Of again, like, like to exude a woman's queenliness, you know, and that's because they, 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 there's a very special care around women, you know, particularly in West Africa. They're, they're queens and, and, and also the mother, it has a lot more power, you know, in the familial structure mm-hmm. uh, than I would say probably here in America. Um, so it's, 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 it's a thing. Of course, also in the film, we see a ton of animal print being used. Oh, you know, God, yes. <laughs> you know, from Bay wearing that cat suit that's like completely encrusted with crystals, kind of mimicking a leopard pattern. I think that was by Valentino. And she had like this ginormous bouffant coat over it at one point, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you already referenced the Burberry ensemble that she was wearing when she was sitting astride the horse. So how has the wearing of animal skin been viewed in African traditions? So why was that pulled in? See, that's where it gets tricky because this is where everybody was, because you heard dividing lines on this. Because I feel like most of the reception of Black is King was really good because obviously Beyonce is Beyonce. But, you know, you did have a faction of people, as historians, we have to talk about both sides. You have, and I was going to ask you about that, so go right, ahead. <laughs> there's, there's the other side of the, the line that said that this was trivializing you know, a lot of the African cultures. I don't subscribe to that, but that's the that's the thought. And because there's always this notion that historically Europeans and that Eurocentric view has kind of purported that Africa is this one big old, not continent, but country that, you know, people live in, in huts and they, they, they go hunt cheetahs for, for breakfast and you know, or we get the Sarah McLaughlin and the little boy with the big belly. Like, it's like you, you get the two images. Like, it's not good. And I've been to Africa and it's completely like going to New York. So it's not, it, it's, it, well, I went to South Africa, went to Johannesburg and um, Cape Town, and I was also in Namibia. But like Johannesburg is like New York. So it's, it's not much of a difference. So in style exists there and fashion exists there. But that's another conversation for a different day. But what Beyonce was doing by taking those prints, I think her intention was to balance this reality, this romanticized reality of Africa, mm-hmm. but bring in this new subversion that helps evolve our thinking collectively on this side of the world of Africa and all of the different aspects. So now those two references that you made, like the the left brand and the Burberry, both of them ironically are very much a part of the South African cultural, you know, layout, particularly the Kosa people and the Zulu people. Uh, and the Nagun, like, well, they're all Naguni. Naguni is like the overarching, uh, the e- ethnic group. And then you have all the, the, the subgroups, the Zulu Kosa, et cetera. Um, but those two elements are very much a part of their, their, their communities. When you see the Zulu people and the Naguni cowhide shields, like that is very much, you see that with the cowhide in, uh, the Burberry situation, or obviously Zulu people, and and and, and with the cheetah overlay, it wearing it is a symbol of power. Exactly, it's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of dominance, and it's a symbol of cultural unity. So for Beyonce to put that in that song, because you know she what the Valentina for move forever. Like that idea is to bring cultural unity. So it's not really like a stretch. Like the whole idea is just to kind of visually invoke the same messages as they would in those clothes and those uh, forms of dress 
into the fashion and into the moment that she's presenting in that point of Black Escape. So that's how I see it. Yeah, you know, and, and on your point that some people were critical of the amount of animal prints used, Zarina Akers, you know, she addressed it head on in the press. And, and she, I have a quote from her. She said that she wanted to, quote, turn that stereotype of, of Africa as primitive on its head and raise up the animal print to make it high fashion. So I thought that was really interesting. And also to note, like, this is not like a new phenomenon either. Like, I feel like Azadine Alaya did that very well too. You know, like it's, it's very much, we've seen great examples of this. And I don't think that we should jump to down people's throat if they're trying to make that change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Also, you just pointed out something that I want to emphasize again, that, that Africa and its peoples are not monolithic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, there are 54 individual countries in Africa. Yes. And another critique of the film was that not every country was visually or aesthetically referenced, but but that would be impossible in the, in right. the scope <laughs> of a film like this. So It's like an hour and a half. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm wondering um, if, if you have any thoughts on how the film addresses as you say, I'm quoting you, quote, the cultural abundance of African and Afro-diasporic cultures. Well, I mean, in terms of fashion, right, like you have people from different parts of the Afro-diaspora contributing. You know, those who are from here in New York, people from South America, you had individuals from uh, all over Europe who are of Afro-descent. You had people from the continent, (laughs) Afro-descent, like all contributing to you know, this Blackest King film. And she taped it, I believe, all over Africa. Like, she was down, uh, she was in Ghana. She taped a, a portion in Ghana. She taped, I believe, a portion in South Africa, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, she taped it here in the United States. Like, she was all over the place. And she really wanted to get into that that mode of pulling directly from, you know, these cultures where she was taping, you know, and that she wanted to really kind of show the world the beauty that she sees. I think that that's really something that I like to do within my work. Not to say that I'm Beyonce. I don't want to say that, but like... (laughs) like, uh, We all wish we were. Right, like, like, right. But like, I like to do this in my work of like, I want people to see the beauty that I see. You know, I want people to see how, like when I went to Africa, I'm like, not many people get an opportunity to, to go to Africa, but like I see it's beautiful. I want other people to see how beautiful it is. And I think that's what Beyonce really was trying to do at, at the core of the project. And like you said, there's so many different cultures, even the 54 nations, like those are colonial borders. Like these people existed there for thousands of years, since the beginning of time and, and, and migrated all around the continent to create and establish their communities and establish viable communities that have impacted this world on trade and economy forever. And they they themselves have their own cultural richness that we tend to negate in favor for Eurocentrism. So we all need to kind of take a step back and realize that, you know, there weren't many artists and creatives, particularly here in the United States, that are, you know, showing Africa in the way that I feel that it should be celebrated, you know, and that feel like Black is King is a celebration of that. If you look at all of the previous artists, let's just say over the last 50, 60 years, you can probably pick them out of a lineup of any ones that wanted to show Africa collectively in a very celebratory way, you know, that gave each culture its own moment. Because I also watched a lot of reactionary videos. I like to do that on my my, my personal time. Yes. When pe- watching people <laughs> watch Black is King and videos from Black is King. And some of them were kids who were from the continent or kids who, you know, had family on the continent and whatnot. And they were like, oh my gosh, that's this, that's that. And they felt connected to it, you know. And someone in the video was like, oh, that's my friend. And like that, like that's like they felt a sense of connection and pride. And that's what Beyonce is really trying to get at is empowerment. And that's really kind of the chapter that she's in, in terms of her artistry. And if anybody feels differently, I mean, they're more than welcome to, but the the intention is really meant for, for good. Yes, she's capitalizing off of that. We can't negate that, right? Like she is making money off of this. All right. But 
is it worse that she's making money and not showing her pride? Like, it's damned if she do, damned if she doesn't. Because there was one time in her career where she wasn't doing uh, situations like this and she was crucified for it. And she wasn't considered Black anymore. Mm-hmm. Now she's doing it and now everybody has an issue. So it's like, she can't win. So at the end of the day, you know, I think that you can do what you can in celebrating in your own way, as long as you don't get disrespectful, which I don't feel like she did. So. Right. Well, um, before we sign off today, and I referenced this at the very top of the show, you also have your own podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I do. It's Fashion Victims Podcast with my with my good Judy, Luke Mar, a.k.a. Hawk Mode. We air it every Monday uh, in the morning time, and we just talk about fashion news and our opinions on contemporary fashion, what's going on in the, in the headlines these days, and we're a little raw. We like to have fun. <laughs> we like to have fun. We give our opinions, but it's all for laughs and all for jokes. And we don't take ourselves seriously, but it's really uh, a dope. And of course, like I add any kind of fashion history element that I see, I, I take that moment to expose that. But if, if it's just about fashion news, you know, and there's no fashion historical element, sometimes that's where the day takes us. So we, we talk about anything that's that's happening right now in the moment. So um, yeah, it's, 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 our, it's our beautiful project. Well, Darnell, thank you, my friend, so much for joining us on Dressed. Thank you. Thank you so much. Darnell, thank you so much for your insights into not only Black is King, but Beyonce's narrative use of the power of dress and fashion. So fascinating. And now, April, I have to go back and rewatch this film again. <laughs> I think that a lot of our listeners will probably join you in that endeavor cast. And, you know, on that note, we will actually set you free to grab your remote and head over to Disney Plus if you subscribe and to watch it or rewatch it. And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the originality and the plurality of joy in African style next time you get dressed. Please join us this coming Tuesday for our next episode. And we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so via email at dressedbyheartmedia.com. Or you can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is, of course, where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.